So I think whether or not this turns out to be a good or a bad move for Lukashenko depends on us. And if we can respond in a way which surprises him, in a way which does not fit into his cost-benefit calculation. It is the week of Memorial Day, and welcome to episode 82 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today, we have Jody Herman, former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Mike Gottlieb, NSI visiting fellow and former associate counsel and special assistant to the president, Lester Munson, NSI senior fellow and former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, first-time guest, Scott Cullinane, NSI visiting fellow and executive director of the U.S.-Europe Alliance, and I'm Grant Haver, NSI policy program manager. So last weekend, we saw this amazing story of a Irish commercial airliner flying over the country of Belarus on its way from Greece to Lithuania, being forced down by a Belarusian MiG fighter jet because of a journalist on board named Roman Protasevich. And I dare say none of us had heard of Roman Protasevich before this incident. Uh, he is now in prison, accused totally absurdly by the dictator of Belarus, Alexander Lukashenko, of trying to bomb a nuclear plant from the plane. Uh, Protasevich, uh, it turns out, uh, was a key figure in reporting on protests in Belarus, uh, getting out videos and pictures of the things that were going on in that country after Lukashenko stole the election last summer. So, Scott, welcome to the podcast. Tell us what's going on in Belarus right now and what Protasevich's role in Belarus has been for the last year. Well, thank you so much. It's great to be on the podcast and it's an honor to be with all of you today. Um, so as you said, this is really an outrageous story, uh, a shocking story in, 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 in today's Europe. And so we had this, this Ryanair flight going between uh, Athens and Vilnius, between two EU capitals, and as the plane was over Belarus, uh, it was ordered to land, to land at Minsk. The pilot complied. And on the ground, two, two people were, were arrested, as we said, uh, a, a reporter, as well as uh, his girlfriend who was traveling uh, with him, Sofia Sapara. And they were both taken into custody. And this is an absolutely uh, an affront to the idea of press freedom. And it has uh, sparked you know, wide condemnation um, and outrage um, from all across Europe. Um, and as you mentioned, this really is the, uh, the latest incident um, in the story that began uh, last summer, last August, uh, with the uh, very obviously fraudulent and rigged presidential elections in Belarus. Um, uh, President Alexander Lukashenko has been in power for almost, almost three decades um, in Belarus, famously, you know, usually carries the moniker uh, Europe's last dictator. And in trying to hold these, uh, these, these, these elections uh, that were uh, so, so ham-fisted and obviously uh, fraudulent last year, uh, all he did is, is succeed in sparking the largest protests in Belarus uh, in the last 30 years. And these protests went on uh, for months um, in the capital of Minsk, uh, as well as, uh, as, as across the country. It was really, it was really unprecedented. And, and the regime's reaction to these protests 
was a crackdown, uh, was violence. Tens of thousands uh, of, of peaceful protesters uh, were arrested. Uh, hundreds remain in confinement. And much of, of Belarus's uh, civil society, uh, the, the, the journalists were forced to go abroad. The, uh, the likely winner of last August, August's election, Svetlana Tikhonovskaya, has been forced abroad and is now in Lithuania and has formed what is uh, de facto the free Belarusian government in exile. Uh, and, uh, and this is a real, a real problem, a real threat to Lukashenko, to his legitimacy and, and to his future. And so he, uh, with the full support uh, of Putin and Russia, uh, is going after, is going after um, the opposition, certainly inside Belarus. And this is the latest example of, of cross-border uh, authoritarian suppression, seeking to go after uh, regime critics and opposition figures um, abroad and to get at them um, however he can. Uh, it's, really, it's really shocking and very concerning. Scott, what is your, uh, you mentioned Vladimir Putin, what's your sense of his possible role in this uh, kind of state-sponsored hijacking incident? Well, we don't know very much for sure. But I think it stands to reason it would be very, very unlikely for this to have happened uh, without Russian knowledge and, 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 and without at least tacit Russian approval. And, and especially considering um, the fact that uh, a, 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 a MiG fighter plane was involved and you consider um, how, how integrated uh, Russian and, and, and Belarusian air defense networks are. Um, the fact that there were likely uh, Belarusian or Russian intelligence agents um, on the airplane um, and also in Athens um, following Roman around. The idea that all this was done um, and Russia didn't know about it and by extension didn't approve of it um, uh, you know, is, is pretty hard to believe. So we don't know for sure yet, um, but I, I think I think uh, it stands uh, to reason that um, the, the Russia had not had foreknowledge of this, and certainly um, in the several days since this incident occurred, uh, Russia um, uh, standing by uh, standing by Belarus, um, and, and certainly um, not using uh, their 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 influence and leverage. For anything good, um, but only as a way to continue um, uh, to stand stand by Minsk and to stand by Lukashenko. So, Jody, let me give you the the hardball question here, which uh, is: Two days after the incident, the Biden administration announced uh, and confirmed that President Biden is having a summit with uh, President Putin in a couple of weeks. Was that the right thing to do right after this happened? Right. So, I I don't think this is that that hard of a of a question. I mean, obviously the timing isn't ideal, but let's like put this on a little bit of context, right? So this isn't like a US-Russia reset. This is gonna be a face-to-face meeting between two people who and countries who really don't like each other very much. So this summit was already in the works and it is uh, clear as it always is that Russia and Putin will try to use the summit to bolster their image uh, domestically as a, as a world leader, because frankly, all of Putin's actions are calculated to make him seem like more than he is, and to divert attention from, from domestic uh, issues, including domestic protests. However, 
Biden's going to walk into that summit on the heels of meetings with U.S. allies that emphasize our political, economic, and security alliances, right? So right before this, Biden's going to have been at the G7 summit on June 11th with, with all of our friends, you know, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, et cetera. And he's then going to fly to the NATO summit in Belgium on June 14th. And this will be an opportune time, I think, headed into the summer for Biden to point out to the world and to Putin that there used to be a G8, right, that included uh, Russia uh, until Russia annexed Crimea in 2014, right? Like, the point in fact is that Russia is excluded from this global leadership group that's addressing the key issues of the day, how to recover from the pandemic, climate change, trade, economic issues. Everybody is there, all the global leaders, you know, are at the table except for them, right? And there will be a huge focus again at that summit on other, you know, kind of core values of this group, uh, including democracy and human rights. So, like the timing wasn't ideal, but I actually think the fact that he's coming out of these meetings and and coming into this summit, I think Biden's going to be in a good posture to demonstrate to the globe and certainly to Putin, you know, that he lost what he could have had. All right, Jody, let me let me try to make the question a little bit tougher. A couple of weeks ago, President Biden did say he wanted the relationship with Russia to be more stable and more predictable. You know, is it a reset? Is it not a reset? Tomato, tomato. Sounds a lot like he's trying to find a new a new way forward with Moscow. Is there really any hope of that at all? Listen, Putin is who he is, and I don't think this administration uh, doubts that for a moment. They they understand that, but. It's kind of like China, right? Like you can't really just not talk and they're not Belarus, right? Like this is this is Russia, right? This is a country that is launching cyber, you know, cyber attacks or, you know, everything from the solar winds attack to the attack on the colonial pipeline a few weeks ago, which was maybe not, maybe not carried out by the Russian government, but carried out by people who are in Russia and, and who clearly the Russian government is not not cracking down on. Um, you know, this is a large nuclear weapons state. Like, we have a lot of issues at hand that we unfortunately have to talk to the Russians about, just like we have issues that we have to talk to the Chinese about. So, you know, like it sounds good to, like, close your eyes and turn your head and, and not, not talk to them, but it's practically not, not it's not responsible to do that. Um, and so, like, the timing here is poor, but, you know, like I said, it, it kind of is what it is. Like, it's not Belarus, right? So. All right, Mike, let's get back to Belarus. Uh, The administration has discussed the possibility of additional economic sanctions on Belarus because of this incident. Do we think that'll work? What What are the real policy options here for the administration to actually uh, promote some sort of positive change in that country? Yeah, thanks, Les. So, I mean, as we've talked about before, sanctions are not a panacea, right? They uh, they can be a, they can be a blunt tool, but you can also use them in a fashion as a scalpel. And what's interesting here is that the administration had already made some significant moves uh, on the sanctions front with respect to Belarus back in April in amending one of the general licenses that exists at Treasury, really targeting the state-owned entities and, in particular, um, some of the oil and petrochemical. Um, industry, uh, state-owned entities in, in Belarus. And that change is actually going to have a fairly significant impact uh, on that industry already. What, what, what really can move the needle here is if the EU follows through on the noise it's making on imposing its own sanctions on the oil industry 
on petrochemicals, on potash, on bond issuances and other forms of financing, that can really have an effect on um, Belarus's ability to have foreign currency come into the country on integrating with other nations other than Russia and essentially isolate them. Now, of course, that has the effect of, of pushing them closer to Putin and, and closer to Russia, but there is a breaking point uh, for any regime and the support it can get from its people and for its economy to grow. And, and, and Belarus is getting pretty close to being at that point if the EU follows through. All right, let's get uh, let's close out this topic. And I want to ask a question and and hope each one of you can re- can respond. Scott, we'll start with you. Uh, uh, Lukashenko gets this activist reporter who was a problem for him in prison. Terrible to us. Human rights abuse. Awful. Maybe a little bit of a benefit for Lukashenko, but the consequences could be terrible for him. Global condemnation, tougher economic sanctions, bunch of aviation restrictions that are. Uh, going to be notable for a while. This this may have been a huge mistake on his part. So what's your assessment? Was this uh, a smart move by Lukashenko or perhaps his last gasp and evidence that he may be on his last legs? I think the answer to that really depends on how we react and what we do. And, and, and Lukashenko you know, isn't done. And I, I would have to think uh, he would have known by doing this, it would have sparked uh, a lot of, of 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 pushback, a lot of certainly a lot of rhetoric, potentially um, some pretty meaningful um, sanctions, and so he went ahead uh, and, and 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 ordered this kidnapping, um, knowing all of that was going to happen. So that that was priced in. Um, so so I, I think whether or not this turns out to be a good or a bad move for Lukashenko depends on, on us, and, and if we can respond in a way which surprises him, in a, in a way which, which does not fit into his cost-benefit calculation. Um, and if we can do that, um, I think this, can be, this could, could end up being a very dumb move on his part. But I think it depends on exactly what we do um, in America and what we do together with our allies in Europe. Jody? I, mean, I think it was dramatic and stupid, right? I mean, having said that, not you know, kind of on par with, with Russia's poisoning and killing of of Kremlin, Kremlin critics, you know, Magnitsky, Vladimir Karamuza, Alexei Navalny, right? Like similar, but they're not Russia, right? So uh, I think politically stupid, it also seems really just desperate to me, right? So uh, in addition to this dramatic action, you know, he also last week, or I guess actually this week, signed into law new amendments that are intended to make protests harder, right? Making it compulsory to get um, to get authorization and making it uh, illegal for political parties and public associations for their leaders to call for public uh, for, for to call for public protests. It really all just seems incredibly desperate to me. Like his internal domestic situation is unraveling, and now you can add to that that his international relationships are also going to unravel and couple those with some economic sanctions and limitations on. Um, on air flights over the country and flights into the country, like desperate and desperate and stupid, honestly. Mike. Yeah. I mean, if all of this was in fact priced in ahead of time, I'd be fascinated to see the risk reward calculation and whatever slide deck he reviewed, because I mean, this is different from assassinating one individual in a, you know, in a prison or even going after somebody in, in in a foreign country. I mean, they downed a civilian airliner. They put many, many people's lives at risk and terrified other nations in the EU that, that are not just scared about it for 
what it means for this, but what it means for other aspiring strongmen and dictators if he can get away with it. So I really do think he dramatically overplayed his hand. Whatever reward he's getting out of uh, this particular act of repression cannot possibly be worth the consequences they're going to face. And, and I mean, I think you're seeing the EU is, is going to take some pretty strong steps here. And if they follow through on that, uh, I don't think that whatever benefits he got out of this are going to work to his advantage. Grant, over to you. Great. Thanks, Les. Um, the second topic we want, we're going to talk about today is the global distribution of vaccines. We've seen a number of spikes around the world in, in India, now sort of across uh, Southeast Asia, um, and even some surprise ones going on in Europe. So let's just go ahead and put the bottom line up front. Will the world ever hit herd immunity? And if so, when? Lester Munson, let's start with you. Noted epidemiologist Lester Munson responds. So uh, let's be clear. I have no medical training whatsoever. I'm not an epidemiologist or a doctor. I'm a political hack at best. I don't know how this this pandemic will end, Grant. Uh, I will note that humanity has survived all previous pandemics. We will get through this at some point, hopefully without too much more damage. But the the things that our governments can do and that our international organizations can do are in question here. The COVAX effort from uh, last year, uh, which which started shortly after the pandemic itself started, uh, has turned out to be a little weaker than we thought. Uh, there is no doubt that the actions of the previous administration of the Trump administration did not help COVAX in any regard. And it was a real kind of failure to show leadership in international fora, whether it was at the World Health Organization itself, at the UN, at uh, with COVAX and some of these other entities. The U.S. missed a lot of opportunities in the Trump administration. I think there have also been a couple missed opportunities in the in the new administration and their handling of the pandemic thus far internationally has been better, but not perfect. Uh, our response to the crisis in India was a little bit late. We may have been over-relying on the good offices of others, and I think we need to be a little more hard-eyed and realistic about what's possible. I think the decision by the administration to be willing to suspend uh, intellectual property rights for pharmaceutical companies is a huge mistake and a big distraction and, and an ideological answer that's not actually going to produce any good whatsoever. And in the long run, could really hurt our ability to respond to future pandemics. Uh, so I hope they're able to walk that back or we get other countries to resist what they're doing. Needless to say, though, the, the current administration has done a better job. We've devoted more resources to responding to the pandemic globally. We need to keep doing that. If anything, the administration needs to seize the opportunity to do more. They should be asking Congress for more resources. There's a huge amount of support across the political spectrum, including conservative Republicans, who want to help uh, the developing world in particular deal with this crisis. I think there's, there is a real uptake that has not been taken advantage of uh, by congressional leadership, by presidential leadership. And there's a, there's a huge opportunity there for President Biden to kind of step up and, and be the person who leads the solution to this pandemic. I'll leave it there. So, Mike, uh, less expertly dodged the question, are we going to be able to move fast enough uh, to, to beat out these variants? I know none of us are, are epidemiologists, but it seems to me like we're, we're going awful slow um, outside the United States. You know, the rates of vaccination are in the low teens at best. Um, so are, are we going to really be able to eradicate this or should we expect this to be around for the rest of our lives? 
I'm going to follow less because I am not an epidemiologist or a virologist. I have no medical training and I do not know the data on this. So Grant, I, uh, I will not engage in your attempt to draw me into providing an expert opinion on a topic about which I have no qualifications. I will say that the vaccines are a miracle. I mean, a, an absolute miracle in terms of the speed of the development and the number of uh, companies that have been able to develop vaccines and the way that they are being deployed in this country now um, have, has also been uh, something of a miracle. And if we can figure out ways to, we as a, as a human international and global community can figure out ways to stop getting in our own way uh, and allow uh, for this sensible and timely distribution of vaccines and providing them to countries that don't have the resources. And there are a lot of good efforts underway to try to do that. But if we can get out of our way, um, you know, I think there's a lot to be hopeful here for. But uh, I am not taking a position on uh, whether we will reach herd immunity in time. So, Jody, since since we're we're all dodging the question, let's go. Let's sort of dig in a little bit to what uh, Mike and Les were saying. You know, the the Biden administration has really been changing their tune sort of week to week. You know, first, we're not exporting vaccine. Now we are exporting vaccine. First, we weren't going to support waiving the vaccine patents. Now we are going to support waiving vaccine patents. What's going on the Biden administration? And when will we be able to see firm leadership from this White House? I I do just want to say this. Like, if I wasn't a political hack, I wanted to be a doctor, but I just wasn't that good at biology. So I didn't land in that place. But I do love a good medical, a good medical drama. And I spend a lot of time on the web MD, you know, diagnosing myself and, and, and other people. So that's, that's the feather in my cap here. And I'm glad I don't have to answer the other question. So on this question, I think it's all a work in progress, right? I, I know we know this, but like, really it is. Um, any president of the United States who was going to remain president of the United States was going to prioritize vaccination of Americans uh, first, and let's not let's not forget to remember that America was really hard hit uh, early uh, early in this uh, pandemic, right? So it doesn't seem wholly appropriate inappropriate to me that we would have we would have gone in that direction. The patent issue, I think, is both uh, simple and hard, right? Private companies, and just that, so people understand this, private companies have a real interest in protecting their intellectual property. Right? And the U.S. has a long-term interest in protecting biopharmaceutical technologies. And that means like the techniques and the processes that are required uh, to make vaccines and, and that presumably will be used in future vaccines and in you know, non-COVID uh, medicines in the future. And nobody wants to hand over to China years of like American investment in research that, erode, that would erode uh, U.S. dominance in this field. So when COVID numbers were, you know, looking better and when it looked like maybe COVAX would be able to serve as a better distribution mechanism, I think this was an easier call. It didn't seem necessary at that point to share the patented technology, but now, like, the equation has kind of changed, right? So infections are still rising uh, in many countries. India's daily cases are, like, through the roof, like 400,000, 500,000 a day. And that's just what they're just that's just what they're measuring. Right. So it does kind of feel like we've got to pull out all the stops that we can. Um, but there is no panacea here. Like companies, even if we were to make, you know, de-patent or make uh, 
these processes and technology available, it's not entirely clear to me that that would solve the issue, right? Because companies would still need the technology, states would still need the inputs in order to manufacture their own vaccines. So the important thing that has happened here is the U.S. is coming to the table at the WTO to discuss this and what it would look like. But I, to Les's point here, like we, the goal here is to vaccinate people and whatever gets us there first is what we should be doing. And so we have to make sure that we're still looking at how do we export vaccines? How do we make vaccines available and not get too hung up on, I, I think, on this patent waiver issue. So, Scott, in my uh, in my search for leadership on this issue, uh, you know, you go to Europe and it is much worse uh, than the U.S. You know, they have not been vaccinating as well. Italy's blocked a shipment of AstraZeneca to Australia. Um, one issue was that EU uh, contracts prioritize prices over speed. But are there other reasons why the best European countries have lagged the United States and even the U.K.? Yes, you know, and there's at least a couple of reasons for that, and, and and you know, it's a big question, and people are going to be investigating just that point for uh, for years to come. But I, I think the short answer to your question um, is that in the U.S., we had a, a fundamentally different um, uh, lens on the pandemic than our friends in Brussels did. Um, yeah, I think for the U.S., we saw the, the COVID challenge uh, as, a na- as a national security challenge, and, and we went after it um, as such. I think for for the EU, you know, it, the pandemic was was a market question, um, and, and and that sounds strange, but I think it makes sense uh, as you think about the EU. Um, you know, the, the EU is is about sort of uh, smoothing out or, or rounding out the differences between big states and small states. Um, and at the beginning of the pandemic, the, the the fear was is that the large countries would would negotiate deals quickly, would would pay less, and get vaccinated first, and, and that would leave uh, the smaller countries, you know, at the end of the line um, and paying more. And so and so for, for for the, for the EU, this was a question of, 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 of how do they secure and preserve European solidarity? How can they make sure everyone in Europe pays the same price and gets the, and gets the vaccination together? Um, and, and it's a different perspective than we had in the U.S., but I think it makes sense um, you know, in, in their context. And, and, the, and the, the result of this emphasis on, on solidarity um, which I think the Europeans actually actually did achieve, um, but but the cost of that was to focus on um, on the process, to focus on process, and they sacrificed speed, and, and that that was the trade off they made. Now I think you know, and from there that that difference of priority, that difference of perspective, trickled throughout the entire process uh, in terms of of negotiating with pharmaceutical companies. Um, how they negotiated, um, you know, in, in terms of, of getting individual vaccines um, uh, approved by the regulators, you know, and it all just took more time. Um, and, and that's because there was this, this fundamentally um, different perspective that it was just inherent in, 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 the, structure of, in the structure of the EU. So, Mike, now that the virus is really receding from people's lives here in the U.S., I 
know that many of us on this call have already gotten fully vaccinated. How difficult is it going to be for Congress to keep their attention on funding the fight for against COVID globally? Uh, very. So, <laughs> uh, I mean, consider... Done in the podcast. Yeah, we could just have a one-word answer. I mean, uh, yeah, consider the fact that, you know, the COVID relief bill passed in March uh, that passed by, you know, the, the slimmest of margins uh, had 70% uh, public approval ratings behind it. And now you're talking about, you know, support for uh, aid efforts globally and internationally, where typically the public has uh, a uh, less generous view of the wisdom of spending U.S. dollars and, and typically believes we spend far more than we do um, in foreign aid. So I think um, it's going to be incredibly difficult to keep uh, Congress engaged on this, uh, particularly if um, they are um, engaged in fighting uh, over issues like uh, the topic that we will next discuss, the, the Wuhan lab and the origins of the virus. I think they're going to be topics that are more attractive to many members and their staffs to spend time on rather than actually delivering uh, dollars in an effective place. So, so I, I think there's a lot of reason to be concerned that, uh, that productive attention will be devoted to this and a lot of reason in history to believe that uh, people are, as people continue to lose uh, interest in, in the virus generally, support uh, for sending money uh, to help the problem internationally is going to diminish, even though it's clearly uh, in our interest in a, you know, integrated global economy and the way that virus is spread around the world for us to make those investments, the argument just gets harder and harder to make. Yeah, uh, Mike, I think you make a, a, a really great point. Les, why are we so bad at this? Like, why, why are we so bad at dealing with international problems that clearly need international solutions. You know, you can think about climate change, you can think about corruption, rule of law issues, you can think about democracy promotion. Like, why is it that we have yet to find some combination of international institutions, leadership, or norms that actually helps us solve these problems? Well, uh, gosh, Grant, how much time do we have left in the podcast? Uh, global global problems are are hard to solve. Uh, I'll, I'll say that at the get-go. I think generally speaking, uh, it's not unreasonable to say that uh, uh, the United States doesn't always sprint to the leadership role when there's a global crisis. In World War II, we were very late to the game. Uh, we, were, we were taking steps before Pearl Harbor to make sure we didn't get involved. Uh, the, the natural political instinct of the American people is, is isolationist and, and inward. Uh, we've seen that, I would argue, uh, and, and we've talked about it on the podcast in, during the Obama administration, certainly during the Trump administration, and now to some extent during the Biden administration, a little bit less so than the previous two, but it's still there. Uh, we, need, we need to see that it is a terrible crisis before we get involved. Once we do, our, our actions are usually uh, salutary and we help solve the problem. Uh, some cases, we're willing to make great sacrifices to do so. I think it requires leadership, though. It requires galvanizing event, to be sure, but it also requires leadership. The president could work with uh, congressional leadership from both parties uh, and make a very good case for a more vigorous response globally. I've seen at least two conservative Republican senators come out, publicly call for a Marshall Plan to address the coronavirus. This is not 
an issue that where you're going to lose support on, on the fringes necessarily at all. I think there's a lot of support in the mainstream. It's a big opportunity, but the president has to kind of step up and show some energy. He's been a little reluctant to do so on global response. He, he needs to step up and, and take that role. I think he'll get a lot of support from both parties on the Hill. So, Grant, I'm not, I'm not so so pessimistic here. I mean, it is true that Congress has a, a short attention span for things that are not uh, that don't have a you know distinct domestic uh, focus to them. But the the implications of global uh, COVID and and uh, and this crisis continue to have domestic implications, right? Like, I don't think even as Americans are getting vaccinated and our caseload is going down, the implications are still really significant, right? People still aren't going to be able to travel. There are still issues, uh, there are still issues with, with trade. And there are still, of course, the very, very significant issue of uh, additional strains of COVID that could put us back in, uh, back in a quarantine situation akin to where we were uh, last summer. I pulled up uh, kind of quickly the, the WHO numbers right now on COVID. So last summer, when we were all sitting at home, uh, locked indoors, there were about a million and a half cases uh, a day globally. Now we're up to about 4 million cases a day globally. Those cases aren't here in the U.S., they're international but I, I don't think that this emphasis is going to go away so quickly because of the kind of like the potential continued reach of COVID on our daily lives, but also the potential uh, for, um, you know, for uh, additional implications for the virus if it would spread or for there to be new strains of it that would impact Americans and make our vaccine effort uh, for not, right? Like, I, I don't think it'll go away so fast. Well, not to, to scoop Les's final final. Uh, comment on what we're following, but you know, it's hard to have a conversation about COVID these days without talking about the lab leak theory. Uh, this was originally uh, sort of floated by Tom Cotton and largely ridiculed in the press and public conversation. Now it seems like there might be more coming around to the possibility that this could be the case. I don't really want to litigate that here, especially because, as we said, none of us are epidemiologists or scientists, and so it's hard for us to say. Instead, I'd like uh, to sort of hear everyone's thoughts on why would it matter? Like, what would what would change in our perspective about this issue? Obviously, we're not going to sue China for the billions, trillions of dollars that this has, has hurt. We're not going to sue them over the countless deaths that could have been stopped. But how will this change our understanding of the virus and our relationships internationally? I'm happy to jump in. First of all, we don't we don't really know the answer yet, right? This is this is an open question, and I don't want to make it sound like I'm assuming there is one specific answer because I don't know. And I think it's these this uh, intelligence community investigation and other oversight are, are very important, and we need to pay attention to the details. Having said that, if it turns out that it was a leak from the lab, accidental, most likely. Um, then, and China has been lying about that for the last year and a half. That has huge implications globally for our competition with China, right? The, to know that this, this horrible pandemic was born in a lie uh, will impact our ability to deal with other countries, China's abilities to deal with other countries. We're, we're looking at implications for the next couple of decades as this competition unrolls. China has a government model they're promoting, we have freedom, democracy, uh, rule of law that we're promoting. 
it's it's critical to know what really happened at the origins of this pandemic as that battle unfolds, because it's going to help us make a better case to the rest of the world that our system is better and they need to turn our way. So, um, uh, the, so I think an important clarification there by Les, which is that you know there are different versions of the lab leak theory, one of which was like an intentionally released bioweapon. Okay, so, so that's not what I'm talking about, at least here. I'm talking about the debate between whether this was an inadvertent leak from a research lab versus coming out of a wet market. Um, I do think that, that determining as much as can be determined from the science is really, really important. Um, and I think that's important because it links back to the, at least in our country, the public's willingness to buy into um, different types of investments, uh, particularly um, investments in pandemic response and planning going forward on a going forward basis. If it turns out that it's a leak um, from the lab, I think you will have a large number of people who believe that we don't need to invest in um, we don't need to invest in anything uh, like that. We don't need to um, uh, be engaged in those kinds of problems. Um, so, and people who will be just more likely to view it through a U.S.-China conflict type of prism. And so, and that may be inevitable because it may be the truth. But I think getting to the bottom of it, particularly if the science. Uh, is able to document that, that it wasn't a lab leak uh, will have important effects on the public's understanding of what happened here and the public's willingness to engage and Congress's therefore willingness uh, to engage on these issues for planning purposes and engaging with the international community on uh, these type of prevention efforts going forward. So Scott, uh, you know, Les was, was saying that this is going to be, this is super important because it will change the way we can sell American democracy and American rule of law to, to others. And, and Mike was making a, a great point about how this will, you know, change the way domestic audiences think about investments. How does this play out in, in, in Europe? Will this bring them over to our side? Will it stop their trade deals? Will it, you know, strengthen their spines and get hungry to like stop be, doing dumb stuff? Or is this going to be just another, you know, another way China is has made a mistake, but they're too big a, a trading partner to lose? I think I agree with less, but I, 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 I'm uncertain about about the magnitude, the scale uh, of, of of what this could mean uh, in Europe or or around the world. I mean, if there if there is a if the lab leak theory proves to be true and there's some evidence for that if, if that comes out you know what will that tell us i think that will tell us that china has unaccountable leaders um, who lie and i think we already know that i i i i don't know what more that tells us about china the ccp of the chinese government that we don't already know by looking at what they're doing in in plain sight in hong kong or tibet or to the uyghurs um, it, it's you, these attributes, um, are, you know, are, are, are clear, you know, if the, if the economic aggression China has shown against both the Europeans and against us in the U S if that's not enough to change your mind, um, you know, if the, if the aggression in the South China sea is not enough to change your mind, I, I don't know if the lab leak theory, um, is going to be that thing that changes a lot of perspectives, um, so I, it would be certainly be damaging. I, I'm I, I'm really not sure um, how much of an effect it would have. 
Um, but I also want to add, I, I do very much agree um, with Michael's point about if if it is shown that COVID was was released from a lab, I think that does have really big implications for what lessons um, we learn. And, and if the lesson is it leaked from a lab, I think for most people, that's actually somewhat reassuring um, because, you know, that means there's only so many labs like this around the world. And if we can just put better locks on them, you know, we'll all be okay. I think it's actually very scary to think that, well, this is something that um, came from nature. Um, We don't exactly know how, but it did. And it might happen again. Um, And I I think that, I think that's very scary for people. And, and, and that, and if that's the case, um, then that requires a lot of investment and and, and a a, a lot of, and a lot of new programs and new efforts. Um, And I I think um, sometimes, you know, for many reasons, um, we may want to default to, um, you know, to to the shorter, the more understandable, um, um, you know, reason. And I think for some people, it may be, uh, it may be comforting to think that this did come from a lab. Um, and if it came from somewhere else, I think that's scarier. I really want to, to foot stomp one of the points that, that Scott made um, and to, to quote a, a former uh, Cardinals uh, head coach, they are who we thought they were. China is always who we think they are. They're liars. They're human rights abusers. They're militaristic. And it's a problem. And there's nothing that's going to magically happen to dawn on us that this is a problem. And I I think that's true in the the Russian context as well in the earlier conversation. You know, the the pot can slowly get warmer and warmer, but we know what's going to happen. Over time, they will keep doing this and keep doing this and lying to their own people and and causing problems. Sorry, go ahead, Jody. Grant, Grant, just to be clear, that was Dennis Green coach of the Arizona Cardinals after the bears defeated his team by scoring three touchdowns in like the last four minutes of the game. So just for everyone's recollection, like you have to be a little bit concerned if at least from the lab, like what else is there? And what, you know, what else should we be concerned about? Yeah. I, I think, you know, one of the things that would, would not surprise me anymore is that China is doing something bad. They're not telling everyone in the world in five to 10 years from now, we will find out that there are even worse atrocities happening. Um, But on that pessimistic note, let's move to our final uh, segment, which is what we're following in the news. Let's start this week with Scott. Scott, what are you following? Sure. Thank you. Um, So this week, uh, I'm following a a story coming out of Hungary. And and this is the story of uh, Fudan University. And and this is a, a Chinese university that is, um, with the support of, of Prime Minister Orban and the Hungarian government, planning on opening uh, a campus um, in Budapest over the objections uh, of, of, of the capital city mayor. And, and this is a 1.5 billion euro project, uh, most of which will be paid for on the form of a loan that will be repaid by, by the Hungarian government. Um, and, and it's obviously, you know, concerning for a, a Chinese um, university to open uh, a, a major, a major campus, um, you know, in Europe, obviously um, controlled by the Chinese government and, and adhering to, to, to the regulations imposed on it by, by Beijing. But this also comes 
in the broader context that that two years ago, um, Central European University, uh, uh, one of the foremost universities in Central Europe and, and a university that had an American accreditation and which awarded um, American accredited degrees um, was forced out of Hungary by Prime Minister Orban and forced to move um, operations to Vienna. So over the past two years, we have an essentially an American university, a very good one, a very prominent one, kicked out of Hungary and uh, a Chinese university um, invited in, not only invited in, but, but being paid for um, uh, by the Hungarian taxpayer. Um, and this is happening in, in an EU country, um, in a NATO ally. And, uh, and that's a very concerning for me and something I'm watching very closely. Great. Jody, what are you watching this week? Right. So uh, last night, Wednesday, uh, we heard the news that one of Cuba's top baseball prospects, Cesar Prieto, uh, defected uh, while he was in uh, while he was in Miami. Right. So his team came back uh, to the hotel uh, and he left. Uh, he left, jumped in a car shortly after that. And then we, we heard the news of his defection. Um, that's certainly not, you know, such an unusual development, but I think it, it puts a point on, uh, on the situation in Cuba, right? To the extent that a person in a country with extraordinary ability, that the only way that they can succeed, uh, is to actually defect from their country as opposed to being able to leave voluntarily, to be able to have to defect from their country in order to, um, to pursue their, their career goals says something about what's going on in that country, right? So, you know, you can link that back to the conversation we've had on this podcast about Russia and Belarus and other places where you see dictators, uh, that the only way that they can control uh, sentiment in their countries is by cracking down on people, on protests, on civil society, right? That that says more about, right, more about that country and that leader than it does, uh, than it does about its people. Um, and that people everywhere, uh, from Cuba to Belarus to Russia and China, want nothing more than to have opportunity and to be able to live how they how they choose and to have a voice in how they're governed. Mike, what are you following this week? So I'm following the fascinating clash over who is the rightful prime minister and controlling government in Samoa. Uh, on Monday this week, Samoa was scheduled to swear in its new parliament and prime minister in a transition of power from 40 years of leadership from the ruling power, the HRPP party. And the new party was set to celebrate that swearing in. And the first woman prime minister in Samoa's history was set to be sworn in on Monday, but it didn't happen uh, because defying orders from the Samoan Supreme Court, the Speaker of Parliament, who's from the HRPP party, literally had the building doors locked and canceled uh, the session of parliament. The chief justice of the Samoan Supreme Court walked over to the building and tried to get the parliament to open the doors, but they wouldn't do it. So they held this impromptu swearing in ceremony on a tent on the front lawn of, uh, of the parliament. Uh, and now the, the ruling party trying to cling to power has filed a challenge in that same Supreme Court claiming that it's biased and calling for foreign judges to be flown in uh, to hear their challenge to the ineffective swearing in. And so uh, uh, this dispute is sort of the latest front uh, and the assault on the rule of law and democracy that is taking place uh, around the world. And, and while a small nation, I think how this uh, bloodless coup gets resolved is going to be really important for how the rule of law is defended and for deterring 
uh, other strong men around the world from doing the same kind of engaging in the same kind of tactics. Genuinely crazy story. Thanks for thanks for bringing that to us. Les, what are you following this week? So uh, I'm following the news uh, from a few days ago that the president of France, Emmanuel Macron, went to Rwanda where he met with Paul Kagame uh, and others and asked for uh, forgiveness for France's role in the 1994 genocide in that country. France had been a supporter of the Hutu government back then. Uh, this was 27 years ago. It is uh, notably, they did not apologize. They asked for forgiveness, but they did not apologize. Perhaps that's uh, coming later. Uh, France did not do much to help the situation, to say the least. But it speaks to the importance of historical memory for victim, victimizer, and those who were who were bystanders or perhaps not as directly involved as the victim and victimizer. It is something uh, that that needs to be dealt with, and it and it brings to mind uh, what President Biden did in terms of the Armenian genocide a few weeks ago. Uh, these things stay with us; they need to be dealt with, uh, and you know, good for President Macron for being willing to do that. Great. Uh, for my part, this week I'm following water scarcity issues yet again, but this time it's not the GERD. Uh, in a piece uh, in Foreign Policy written by Alex Vitenka, uh, he argued that Iran's biggest problem may be water scarcity. Uh, he states that almost a third of Iran's 85 million people are living in water-stressed areas. And a report in Bloomberg noted that 12 of the 17 most water-stressed states in the world are in the Middle East and North Africa. Foreign policy issues are complex, but it often gets boiled down to diplomacy, intelligence, military, and economics. However, we have to move beyond the simplistic view and really incorporate issues like global health, as we discussed today, and the environment, because when we do that, we might find new ways to make inroads in frozen conflicts. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at masonnatsec. If you like what we're doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, Les Munson for hosting, and Grant Haver for producing and directing. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.